In his book, The Want Makers, Eric Clark recounts the story of an advertising executive by the name of Obi Winters. In the 1930s, sales of horse liniment named Absorbing were crashing, but Winters ran trials to see if it could be useful in any way on humans. And so it proved that this horse remedy was especially effective on ringworm and fungal infections of the feet. With a stroke of advertising genius, however, Winters conjured up a whole new name for ringworm, rebranding the fungal infection with the much more classy athlete's foot. Well, it sounds a whole lot better saying you've got athlete's foot than ringworm, doesn't it? In fact, you'd almost be disappointed if you didn't suffer from athlete's foot at some point during your lifetime because it carries such a virile, positive, active, almost glamorous association. It's amazing what rebranding can do. How something not so pleasant can sound so wonderfully appealing. And it's the same with sin. And how it's pitched. For as we travel these peaks and valleys with Elijah today, we enter a time and place when everything had been rebranded. Life appeared to be getting better, the economy stronger, military and political alliances firmer, and the people of Israel were so much happier. That was Israel in the mid-9th century BC under the leadership of the seventh king of Israel named Ahab. After 12 years of the stability of the reign of his father Omri, Ahab succeeded him for a very stable 22 years, ruling from Samaria alongside his wife Jezebel, who was the daughter of the neighboring king of Sidon. Ahab and Jezebel were want makers, clever in creating a culture of wealth and happiness, but at the expense of God, his word, and his people. They were experts in rebranding. For in our introductions to Ahab in 1 Kings 16, verses 29 to 34, we see how he took what was wrong by covering it in building projects and large investments and healthy budgets, covering his palace in ivory and gold, making something fun out of what was fungus. Notice with me, first of all today, the king of sin who leads Israel into a royal mess. The king of sin who leads Israel into a royal mess because that's what Ahab was. He was the king of sin. It's not a great start to the summary of your life in the Bible when it reads like this, but let's have a look at verse 30. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal of the Sidonians. And if you know anything about those before him, his predecessors, that is not a prize you'd want to claim. Sin champion. That's basically what he's being described here. Sin champion. He outdid every other king in terms of the sin he committed. And what were those sins of Jeroboam that he counted as trivial? Well, in order to understand that, even if you want to deflect back for a moment, the First Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 33, you read in First Kings chapter 12 there about the sins of Jeroboam. That after the nation was split in two, with Israel to the north and Judah to the south, following a civil war, resulting in Jeroboam, king of Israel, setting up his own system of worship. And you'll read in that chapter, he set up these two bulls. 
He didn't want his new kingdom always looking over their shoulder jealously at Jerusalem, where there was the temple and the sacrifices and the standards and everything that reminded them of their past. But rather, he set up his own religious equivalent. And as he unveils these two bulls, one is in Bethel and one is in Dan. One is to the north and one is to the south. So no one had to travel too far now to worship. And he says in verse 28 of chapter 12, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel. He introduces to them the new gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And this thing became a sin. He's very clever, isn't he? He's not starting something new, but he's mixing what Israel already had, recognizing it as a nation they already had a history, but he's not wanting to get too caught up with the God of history. Jeroboam acknowledges his people were saved from Egypt by a God, but he rebrands that God into these two bulls, all for his own good. He, he gives God a fresh feel. The problem is, it's a false feel. And Ahab does the same. He seeks to give worship in Israel a complete makeover. He doesn't want to be tied to the traditions of the past, but rather rule with the mood of the present. That was the genius of Ahab. And having married the daughter of his nearest rival, very shrewd, don't say anywhere that he, he loved her or there was any close relationship with her really, but he married the daughter of his nearest rival in order to bring peace to his borders. Ahab opened the door immediately at that point, back to chapter 16, verse 31. Immediately he began to serve Baal and worship him, setting up an altar for Baal in Samaria and making Asherah poles. Do you want to know who Asherah was? It was Baal's missus, the less attractive member of that couple. And the repeated term Baal is mentioned four times in two verses, shows just how dominant his worship had become, but Baalism was really popular. Israel as a nation was reliant on green fields and fertile valleys and vineyards and crops and consistent autumn and springtime rains. So about October, November and about something like March, April, there was consistent rain and it was just enough to keep the greenness of the grass and the valleys fertile and the crops growing. But here was Baal. He was the poster boy of fertility. And with Baal, you got fertility and dew and rain and clouds. And Ahab and the Israelites bought into this faith and Jezebel had brought with her from her home in Sidon. And from that moment on, it did feel like Israel had gone Baalistic. Ahab and Jezebel made this very shrewd but clever calculation that this new religion was congenial and jolly and justifiable. Well, especially when you read about how many festivals they had. Everyone was in good mood last couple of weeks, weren't they? Bank holiday weekend. We all love work whenever there's a bank holiday weekend. And if your government and your king says, well, you're going to have a festival for this and a festival for everything, this is a great king we've got. We've got days off left, right, and center. What a great king he is. People could hold on to their fuddy-duddy Lord of Israel beliefs if they wanted, so long as there was a little bit of diversity, a little bit of variety. Surely worship was meant to be a bit more fun. And it was all very hands-on full of festivals and frivolity and partying and revelry. But like any false faith, what looked good on the surface had very deep, dark undertones. For example, if your crops weren't growing, you had to go to the temple, prostitute, and try and coax a further blessing out of Baal. And if your fields weren't flourishing, you might offer your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Yes, your son or daughter is a burnt offering in return that your crops would grow that summer. 
Whilst Baal looked bright and breezy at first glance, he was moody and mopey underneath it all. And he wanted to squeeze every last drop of sacrifice out of him. Baal and Asher were like any false gods and any false religions, even today, taking what people like and what people want and somehow molding them and shaping them into a sort of fabricated DIY faith that's styled in how we want and how we feel, but tells us little about God. It's amazing how many world religions, including even Christianity, and even for many of us sitting here in Union Road and in Northern Ireland today, have more of what we want for our families, our political views, our views on vaccines, our deeply held traditions, our work, our holiday homes, our free time, our farms, our money, and we've squished it into the God that we want. And we pack it in beside a little tiny Jesus into our lives, and we create me version Christianity. We rebrand it, and we call it what we want it to be. And so then we excuse bigotry, and we excuse gossip, and we excuse dodgy business practices, and we excuse sin as just a bit of fun on the side. King Ahab of Israel treated sin as trivial. You know what trivial is? Boys and girls, you know what trivial? Hands up, you ever heard of Trivial Pursuit? Trivial Pursuit is the game where the person who knows the biggest lot of nonsense usually wins. They, they, they give it away as if they're really intelligent, but no, trivial means, <laughs> hey, whatever. That's what trivial is. And so here, Ahab treats sin as, whatever. And so the rebuilding also then of something very, very significant, and some of you who would have had the alarm bells going off and the klaxon sounding as David read this to you earlier, would have realized, did we not hear this a few weeks ago? As Del Boy said, no need fools and horses, it was like deja vu all over again. Because if you read in verse 34 here, the rebuilding of Jericho caused the death of the sons of Hale, the one who carried out the building work. Jericho was that great city we learned about in Joshua just a few weeks ago that was totally destroyed, but the promise was made anyone who sought to rebuild Jericho would automatically be cursed. The minute the first building block went in and the minute the last block was in place, whoever was involved would know death. Kiel got the building contract for this great military fort in Jericho and he had to bury his two boys at the start and end of the project. Was it worth it? <laughs> I guarantee you, Ahab went and looked at Jericho and thought, wow, I have rebuilt the walls of Jericho. I have great military strength and might. Look at this fort. No one will topple this thing ever again as he ails up the road with tears in his eyes beside Mrs. Heel at the sight of their two-year-old and their 12-year-old. That's what sin does. That's what sin leads to. Someone thinks, oh, isn't it great while someone is in bits because it brings death. Ahab was the king of sin. He sinned most, he sinned more than all his predecessors. From the outside looking in, Israel looked as if she had never had it so good. Great new walls up, lots of fun, loads of festivities. What a great religion, but it was a right royal mess. Underneath the fun was the fungus. And so enters, secondly, God's servant from nowhere whose prayers turn off the taps. 
God's servant from nowhere whose prayers turn off the taps. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. J. Oswald Saunders writes, Elijah appeared at zero hour in Israel's history. Like a meteor, he flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's dark spiritual night. Elijah doesn't get much of a build-up, does he? Compared to Ahab. We get loads of verses about who Ahab was and what his background was. Elijah doesn't get a build-up. He just walks straight into this palace, doesn't he? He walks straight into this huge palace and he comes out of nowhere. In fact, Tishbe, where he comes from, is one of those ancient places that archaeologists can't even find anymore. They can't even locate it on a map. But we do know it was near Gilead, and Gilead's very evident still. It was a place of outdoor life where people were likely to have really leathery skin and coarse, hard hands, a place of not much sophistication. We aren't told who his father was. We don't know which prophet school he went to. We don't know who trained him up. He just turns up and walks in. And whilst we mightn't have all the background, Jen, and the lowdown on Elijah before this showdown, we can tell by his name something about him and his family. Elijah. El, E-L, at the start, or N, of any Hebrew name means God. Like Daniel means God is my judge. Here, El, it's God. Yah, or Yah, at the end, is the word for Lord, Jehovah, Yah. And that small letter I, right in the middle, means me or my. What does his name mean? Put it together, you've worked it out. My God is Lord, or the Lord is my God. What a name. Now listen, we don't know anything about his parents. We don't know anything about this man's background. But what we do know, his parents must have been a family of faith to give him such a name. Here's an irrelevant family from a backwater place in the middle of all the darkness of all the kings who'd gone before who still declared in their family life, the Lord is my God. What an incredible example of parents to children. What a name he grows up with. And we might not name our children the Lord as God today, but we do teach our children that the Lord is God. For you know if we don't, they'll worship at the Asherah poles and the Baals of this world. And so whilst Ahab and Jezebel were playing at gods for their own good, as they benefited from Baal, Elijah saunters into this palace, and he says very simply, doesn't he, in verse 1, there's one God, his name's Jehovah, I serve him, he lives, let's see how your Baal copes when the taps are turned off. Yes, he really is that bold. And the message really is that simple. There will be no dew, no rain, except at the word of Elijah, this nobody who comes from nowhere. Now this is a huge challenge to Ahab, Jezebel, and their god Baal. Baal, the god of rain. I shared this with some of you, I think, before. Last summer, early one morning, due to a tangle of leads and confusion over dogs chasing tennis balls in Port Stewart Strand, our dog managed to run off with a tennis ball that belonged to Cecilia Daly of BBC Northern Ireland weather fame. And of course, in all the confusion, what do you think I asked her? What do you think I asked her? What's it going to be like later on today? 
To which she says, how do I know? <laughs> I'm sure she gets it all the time. But in the middle of Ahab's reign, there ain't going to be any reign. Cecilia and Barra and Angie would have all been furloughed for at least three years because day in, day out, the sun was going to shine. The clouds would keep passing by and the water kept evaporating and striking a shattering blow to Beale. Beale was about to shrivel and his reputation go down the cracks. And it's in the New Testament book of James we read how it actually happened. And it's incredible how it happened. James chapter 5 verse 17 tells us, Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Commentator David Field explains, and just in case a reader of this letter protests despairing, he said, oh, I know Elijah. James points out that this famous prophet was not an unreachable spiritual superman. He had ups and downs just like the rest of us. It was not because he was hyper-righteous that God answered his prayers. His praying was effective because it expressed faith in the all-powerful God whom he served. God responded to Elijah's prayers because Elijah responded to the greatness of God. And that's how we pray. Elijah was so moved in his spirit and jealous, first of all, for the reputation of the Lord whom he served, that he prayed and he acted and he spoke to God and he challenged the king and the taps were turned off. Baal might be popular, but Baal could not make it poor. Only God. Only God. If you've got no God, you'll have no rain, you'll have no food, you've no life. You have no hope. Should times of crisis not lead us to consider that? To consider life and where it comes from? From the God who gives it all? Should that not be enough to lead us in prayer for the people of this world, the parliaments who rule over us, the postcodes in which we live? Is that not enough to shape our priorities of the when and how we pray? Some of us can get lost in the darkness and frustration of the moment though, can't we? We can all let our emotions rule our minds and our circumstances consume our trust and the latest news rule over us. But if this Elijah story teaches us anything, it is we need not despair. God is always working, always preparing, always readying someone from behind the scenes and nobody from nowhere to bring in. He always raises up his servants in the darkness of every corner of this world. And he can use men and women on the ground as well as ravens in the air. That's where we finish today. The Lord, the God of Israel, supplies using dirty birds and distant brooks. That's what we read about in verses 2 to 6, isn't it? God's word comes to Elijah. He says, go east. He says, head to the brook Cherith and stay there. Live there. Elijah just made a great impact on the court of Ahab. And then he's whisked away to this remote spot on the east of the Jordan and the Kerith or Cherith Ravine, as it's called. I'm sure there must have been something in Elijah's heart that day, thinking, come on, I've only just got going. I've just gone in. I've delivered the killer line. And yet you're wanting me to go. I'm sure there must have been something in Elijah thinking, oh, I want to see what happens here. I want to see Ahab groveling at my feet. I just, well, why are you sending me away? whenever great things for you are about to happen, Lord. But 
God speaks and he says, go. Go. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis explains this for us, that there is much more to this than simply God showing his true power by, showing his true power by withholding the rain. He says this, Elijah functions in his capacity as the bearer of Yahweh's word. When he vacates the premises at God's direction, it is not just any Tom, Dick, Harry, or Azariah is disappearing. The disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of the word of God from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. Did you know the Bible always treats the withdrawal of God's word and the silence of his voice as a mark of judgment? I mean, it always amazes me how many Christian people fail to turn up to church with the Bible, making it very clear from the moment they walk in, they're not expecting to hear God speak to them. But you know, even if you do have a Bible in hand, you can still suffer the absence of God's word. You can have the Bible in many colors, and in fact, go into any Christian bookshop, and you can buy Bibles for teenage girls, Bibles for retired men. You can have the fisherman's Bible, the farmer's Bible, the engineer's Bible. You can have Bibles that you color in. You can have the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, the AV. You can even have a Bible study app on your phone. And as some of us do, even on a Sunday, they follow along and maybe use some sort of commentary even while I'm speaking so they can keep me right. That's fine. That's good. And yet for all that incredible availability, the word of the Lord often withdraws from us. Why? Because yes, we might have it open, but we haven't let it change us for years. And that, my friend, is a scary business. If you haven't changed as a result of the exposure of God's word, one day he will withdraw speaking to you. I'm not asking you today, are you holding a Bible or gripping a Bible? I'm asking, has the Bible gripped you? Has it? How has the Bible got under our skin and transformed us? For if we keep hearing from it and doing nothing with it, God will take it from us by hardening our hearts and closing our ears, just like he did with Pharaoh, just like he does with Ahab, just like he does with the Israelites. And so Elijah comes to this place, Cherith, and it means the cut-off place. The C-R-T letters in Hebrew mean cut-off or to cut. And here he is alone and cut-off and awaiting God's provision. One day at a time, these meals on wings and this flowing brook. Come the evening time, his stomach rumbles and his mind races, and he begins to think once again, has God forgotten me today? But then suddenly those two little black dots appear on the horizon, the wings flapping and Elijah's heart pounding. And he stops and he says to himself, my God has done it. My Lord has provided for me again and again. On each new day, every evening, every morning, food supplied by the ravens. That's incredible, isn't it? Ravens. Any Hebrew reading this would have thought you were a raven lunatic. 
Because Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 tells very clearly that these are the dirtiest of birds that no Hebrew is ever to touch or eat or go near. These are lazy birds who relied on what I call critters, roadkill, the chariots that run over on the highways, or other animals that had to go up. First of all, ravens are lazy birds. They're scavenger birds who don't get the food for themselves, but they rely on what others have left behind. As we would have said in school, they were bin hoggers. They went looking for food that others had had to go at, first of all. What kind of meat would they bring? Oh, don't ask. But simply cook it well and eat it up. And God uses these cursed, unclean birds of the air to drop off meat feasts morning and evening to his servant Elijah. We're nearly finished, so hang on with me. There's a story of Judge Donald McDonough in Virginia in the States who ran an assembly line of efficiency and he used to be well known for handling 150 landlord and tenant disputes in his courtroom every Friday. That's not bad going. 150 back-to-back, landlord versus tenant. But at 10 a.m. one Friday morning, something made him stop. For there was a deaf couple who were facing eviction for falling $250 behind their rent. The landlord was absolutely insistent that this couple were either pay up or get out. But apparently Judge McDonough left the courtroom at this moment. He returned a few moments later from his car with two crisp $100 bills and a $50 bill. And he leant over and he handed it to the landlord's shocked attorney and say, that's it sorted, away home with you. Who would have guessed? that such help would come from such an efficient, busy judge. But as Bible readers, we shouldn't be surprised at stories like that. For as God's people, we look on, and we see that our daily sustaining grace comes not from dirty birds in the air, neither from distant brooks, but from another cut-off place where someone was regarded as cursed and where God's servant was sent where someone was cut down, a place where God's people would be very surprised to find God's servant. For there we see our daily provision is dirty and cursed and written off by the law, treated as roadkill and unclean, his face marred beyond all recognition, his body beaten to pulp as he hangs outside the city wall. And just at those moments in life, when we think that we have been neglected, just at those moments in life when we think we're forgotten or abandoned or overwhelmed or there's no one who cares, do you see him there? God the Father, God the Judge, not throwing money at you to pay for your rent, but God the Father sacrificing his own son to pay for your sin. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Ahab and Jezebel made what was fungus into fun. A religion that stank to high heaven and a God that was powerless was covered up by the attractive nature of do what you like and give what you can. But who could have ever dreamt up a God who is all glorious and spotless, giving his own son as a curse, so that we might receive such a glorious blessing. We might look out in our lives today and we mightn't see the ravens coming 
flatline towards us. But we do see those crucified hands outstretched, unable to flap because he's nailed rigid, taking your sin and mine. And there we see he has provided all that we need in the son that he gave. He has given everything. 